Well, please go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 28. Uh, 1 Samuel uh, 28. Now, last week we looked at, at David's activities. Uh, uh, it, quite honestly, we were disappointed in some of the things that uh, he was doing. And it's kind of one of those things where you're just kind of like, what in the world, David? What is a follower of the Lord uh, doing things like that for? Uh, and then we, we were able to see how we should respond when people disappoint us. And well, this week we're going to shift uh, the story to Saul. You see, Saul's in, in, in the, one of the most desperate times of his uh, life, and uh, we're going to get to see what he does in that desperation. How does he respond to that? And, and to be quite frankly, uh, things just get downright crazy, weird, and freaky. In fact, someone on staff told me this week that she's been waiting for this chapter for weeks because it's been such an intriguing and weird chapter for her. Uh, so, church, here we go. But as we do, let's keep an eye out for three ways that we can respond uh, to this passage. Three ways to respond this morning. Well, chapter 28, let's uh, actually pick up in verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him. Pause. Last week, uh, you kind of get this sense that there's this, in the Davidic storyline, there's this momentum that's building, this uh, crescendo that at some point is going to climax. And, and uh, in fact, uh, the first two verses uh, uh, of chapter 28 kind of leaves you with this like idea of like, man, David's actions have actually got him in this like big predicament. He is in a pickle. What is David going to do next? It kind of uh, leaves us hanging there. Uh, is David going to betray his countrymen? Will David fight for the king of the Philistines? Tune in next week to see what happens. Same bat time, same bat channel. Then we come to verse three, and it's like complete shift in a different direction. The storyline abruptly changes. And in fact, the author actually, in this passage that we're gonna to study today, the author actually pulls this uh, story from something that happens in the near future. It doesn't follow in the same chronological timeline. He pulls it in and he smacks it right dab in the middle of this Davidic storyline. You go out, uh, what we'll cover next week in chapter 29, that picks it right back up with David again. So the question is, why would the author do this? Why would he get our hopes up and, and make us wait for a whole nother chapter before finding out how David gets out of his pickle? Well, typically in the Old Testament narrative, when the author pauses the chronological flow of, of the story, it's because he wants to bring two stories side by side for comparison and contrast. So let me just propose that whereas last week David's disappointing us with his actions, here what we're gonna see is that Saul's situation and his actions that follow reveal that he's in a much worse condition. So while, while David may have stumbled big time in his walk with the Lord, at least he has a walk with the Lord. And he hasn't descended to the depths of Saul's depravity. So there's hope for this future king. Whereas, as we'll see, there's basically no hope, virtually no hope for the current king, Saul. So with that in mind, let's now look at verse three together. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. 
And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. So the author gives us two key pieces of background information that are really, really important for what's about to happen. The first one is something we've already looked at in chapter 25, that Samuel had died, that Israel had mourned him, and that they had buried him in Ramah. The second piece of information, though, is, is new to us. And it says that, that, that Saul had put out of Israel the mediums and the necromancers. Now, those two terms, medium and uh, necromancers, are actually being used interchangeably here. And, and, and they both refer to people who are acquainted with the secrets of the underworld because they could talk to the spirits of the dead using magic arts. We might call these people witches and sorcerers in our time. Now, understand, uh, this is a big deal. Because according to Israelite law, way back in the Mosaic law, in Exodus when it was first given, and then into the Leviticus, and then into the renewal of Deuteronomy, renewal of the covenant there, people who practiced witchcraft were, were to be put to death. God made it a capital crime. In fact, he even said that Israel was, was not even able to seek them out or consult them. And later on, the Lord says, that those practices are an abomination to him. Now, this type of, of magic that we're, we're talking about here is not the same kind of harmless, fictitional, uh, fictitious, magical fantasies you read about in books like Harry Potter or movies uh, we see in movies like Lord of the Rings. So rest easy. Um, this isn't gonna turn into a sermon about the evils of Fantastic Beasts or The Hobbit. Okay. The kinds of witchcraft uh, that was practiced in the ancient Near East was demonic. And it often involved child sacrifice. And, and I'm taking a moment here because I didn't even realize until I started studying this text just how entwined these, these demonic, magical arts sadly became entwined with Israelite religious practices. I mean, there's passage after passage after passage about it. And I think the, the number of passages that, that are mentioning the practice show that at least at some point it became a very pervasive uh, problem in Israel. So this is a big deal. So with these two pieces of information, let's see what happens here as the story unfolds in verse four. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. So the last time that we see Saul fighting the Philistines explicitly was at the, the battle uh, where David killed Goliath back in chapter 17. Uh, similar to then, now we see that, that, that the Philistines have drawn up uh, in battle formation across the Jezreel Valley, which is, is northern part of Israel, and, that, and Saul gathers the Israelite army and they, they draw up in, in battle line formation on the opposite side. Only this time too, the text is really explicitly clear. It says that Saul is afraid and his heart trembled. He was quaking in his boots, sandals. It means that he was scared and terrified all the way into his soul. There's also some different things too here. David's gone. Samuel is long gone. And I gotta say that Jonathan's not even mentioned here. On top of all of that, look at verse six. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. The Lord is gone too. 
Saul is all alone. He's got no one. And to be fair to Saul, inquiring of God was, a, was definitely a good move. One of the only things that we can commend him for in these final years of his life. But here's the thing. Sadly, the Lord had become more of a God of convenience to Saul. So he only wanted God whenever it was, his life wasn't going so well. And before we judge Saul, how often do you and I treat the Lord as a God of convenience? I mean, when life is going well, we just don't need God. And we kind of give him the proverbial, I got this dude, bro, I got it. And the text says that God uh, did not respond through dreams uh, or through the Urim, which, which you don't know much about other than it was an object that was uh, typically pinned on the high priest's breastplate. And it was a permissible means of inquiring of the Lord. The Lord allowed that kind of activity for that object. Um, and then of course he says, or by prophets. And I'll just make a note that earlier we saw that Saul had basically wiped out most of the priests that were in Israel. So it makes sense that, that he didn't hear anything from the Lord through the Urim because there was no one qualified to use it. And I'll also note too that it doesn't say this explicitly, but it is likely that when Samuel rejected uh, Saul, the rest of the prophets did too. He's alone. And I think we have to understand Saul's desperation here. See, leadership is lonely enough. He's leading a nation. And here he is. He's got a war on his hands. The fate of Israel rests on his soldiers. It's like, you know, should he, should he engage in battle? Should he retreat? Will the Lord fight for Israel? And the Lord gives him nothing but silence. And the text is explicitly clear all throughout this passage of how terrified Saul is. The reality is that Saul's desperation is born more from a fear of the war than a fear of the Lord. Chris, how do you know? Let's look at how he responds to God's silence here in verse seven. Then Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, behold, there is a medium and indoor. Do you see that? Saul seeks truth from darkness. In Saul's darkness, he seeks out more darkness. I gotta tell you, friends, his desperation is driven more by a fear of the war than a fear of the Lord. And we can learn something from this because we have an opportunity to respond differently. Instead, we should fear the Lord, not the war. We should fear the Lord, not the war. You see, the reality is, what scripture teaches is that all of life is war. We live in a war zone. We actually get ourselves into big trouble when we forget that we live in a war zone and we start acting like life is this big happy paradise. The reality is, is that scripture says that we are in a, a war and Ephesians 6 says that we are to put on the full armor of God because every single day, we have to battle against the spiritual forces of evil, against the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, and against our own indwelling sin that still remains. And the fear of this war can be real. It is real. 
And, and truthfully, because of this, we're all always desperate for the Lord, always. In fact, if you're here this morning and you're like, my life's pretty good, I don't think I'm very desperate, then in fact, you are more desperate than the rest of us because you don't even realize it. And sometimes this desperate fear can get the best of us. Maybe you're here uh, this morning and your life is, is characterized by a fear of this war that we're in. Perhaps you're stuck in the what ifs, the what if this happens, or what if that happens, or what if this, or what if that, what if that, what if this, ad nauseum. Or overwhelmed by the depravity and brokenness of humanity. I mean, just look what's going on in our families and in our community, in the nation, in the world. It can leave us paralyzed, it can rob us of, of the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Hey, the way to get unstuck is to set your eyes on the Lord. Be in awe of him. Behold him. He's awesome. Take our, our eyes off the war long enough to put them on God, to see him, to fear him. And Saul should have taken his desperation back to the Lord. He, he should have waited on the Lord and put his hope in the Lord. In fact, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says in, in, in chapter eight, verse 17 of, it, of Isaiah, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. See, the Lord's hiding his face from Saul. Saul should have waited on the Lord and hope in him. That's fearing the Lord, friends. That's fearing the Lord. Let's see how this story continues here. Verse eight. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. Indoor was actually only just a, a few miles away, but it, the trick was it was actually behind the Philistines' camp. So uh, Saul and, and the two servants had to dress up, disguise themselves, and then they had to sneak around behind the enemy lines to get to the, where the witch was at Indoor. Now here in the, in the end of verse eight here, and Saul said to the woman, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, okay, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. So Saul tells the witch to consult with a spirit of the dead. He then goes on to blaspheme the Lord God by, by invoking a, an oath as the Lord lives. She will be safe. Did you notice that Saul seems to always be doing that? Well, it apparently convinces her. I don't know if she should have believed him or not, but... It convinces her and she's like, okay, well, what do you want me to do? And he says, bring up Samuel. Now look what happens next. Pay careful attention. Verse 12. When the woman saw Samuel, let me repeat. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul, Saul knew that it was Samuel. 
and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. This is one of those few verses where you're like, say, what? Like, this thing just got really, really weird and freaky. Like, like what just happened? Well, friends, it's because we've just entered the Twilight Zone. See, we're not told much about the witch. We're not told much about who she is, what she looks like, nor are we told about what kind of magic she uses to, to bring up the spirit of Samuel. And that's not the point. You see, the Lord is not gonna glorify evil, demonic practice. I will say this, if witchcraft was an abomination to the Lord, then the power the witch is using here is not from him. It's demonic power. And when the witch sees Samuel, she cries out with a loud voice. You ever wonder like, what does she say? <laughs> Maybe that's why it's not in there. <laughs> There's debate on, on which, why she cried out. I actually think it had to do more with the fact that whatever she saw in Samuel, she suddenly realized that, that the king of Israel is standing before her and she's super like freaked out about it. And she was, she's like, okay, I see this God and she describes his robe and that probably has something to do with uh, because of the, the pagan belief uh, in that time that ancestors become gods in the underworld. And Saul somehow knows from the description that it's Samuel. Now listen, I understand that this whole scene probably raises a lot of questions in our minds. It, it certainly did in mine and it led to a lot of rabbit trails for me as I was studying for this text, okay? Questions like, did this really happen? <laughs> can you really talk to the dead? And, and if you can, can you really talk to believers? Or is it just unbelievers? And by the way, what does this mean about the intermediate state? You know, that, that, that state where, where, where when a person dies, that interim period between then and when the resurrection occurs in Christ's second coming? What are the implications of that? And by the way, how should this inform our understanding of fortune tellers, mediums, witch doctors, and Ouija boards in our day? And the questions go on and on and on and on. And I'll just note, these are really great questions, by the way, okay? And scripture certainly provides guidance on answering them. We're not gonna be able to cover all of those today. But here are a couple of thoughts to ponder. First, the Bible presents what's going on here as fact, not fiction. As fact, not fable. The witch is not pulling the wool over Saul's eyes and tricking him and tricking us. This really happened. Second of all, because this really happened, it follows that it's possible this kind of thing goes on today. And we have to be careful that just because we haven't necessarily seen that happen, that we don't just dismiss it altogether like it can't happen. We also have to guard against getting cynical about it just because of what we see on reality shows that talk about it and, then, and think this is just a hoax, just like on those TV shows. But because the Bible speaks of these practices as evil, we should avoid them and anyone who uses them. 
Chris, are you saying don't mess around with Ouija boards? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Now I'll add one more thing. If the witch was able to bring Samuel's spirit back through demonic power, it was only because the Lord allowed it. Samuel belongs to the Lord, not to the witch or to Satan's power. And if you're here and you're Christ, in Christ uh, this morning, we belong to the Lord, not Satan's demonic power. So anything that happens either to our, our brothers and sisters who are deceased or currently asleep right now on the ground or in this life with us is, can only happen because the Lord allows it. We belong to him. Let's not, though, miss the main point of what's going on. Saul turned to the witch, not the Lord. Yes, but Chris, he did, you see, and, and God didn't respond, so it's God's fault. He had to do something because God drove him there. No, 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 no. Saul should have waited on the Lord and put his hope in the Lord, and instead he sought the witch. Our response should be different. Our response should be different. We should seek the Lord, not the witch. And by which, I mean any alternative means of, of getting secret or special insight apart from the Lord. See, friends, we cannot allow our desperation to drive us into the arms of another God, a false God. So question, is there something in your life right now that's your functional magic eight ball? Or what kind of fortune cookie are you seeking out? The truth is, is God has given us his word, his spirit, and his people. We have everything we need. And so in our desperation, we can seek him. We have to seek out the witch. Here's the thing. If you're currently in a, in, in a spot right now with your family or maybe it's your business or could even be a church if you're visiting with us and, and there seems to be no direction from the Lord, then put yourself in a hold pattern. Wait on the Lord. Put your hope in him. Seek the Lord, not the witch. The Lord delights it when we seek him. The Lord delights to respond when we seek him. And he'll bring clarity in the chaos. Let's pick up here in verse 15. When Samuel, or sorry, then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I've summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. And the Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. 
I see these verses 15 to 19 as, here as the climax of this passage. And, and Saul makes one of the saddest acknowledgments in all of scripture. He says, God has turned away from me and answers me no more. And then Samuel makes one of the scariest statements in all of the Bible. The Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. Let that sink in. That's heavy. The Lord's anointed has become the Lord's enemy. I believe that what this means here, along with some bad fruit that Saul has been bearing all along, that he is not a follower of Yahweh. There's no communion with God here. Saul sought information from God when he should have sought relationship with God. But Saul only wanted to save his own skin and he wasn't willing to submit to the creator of that skin. What's so interesting here though, friends, is that God responds. God indirectly responds through Samuel, through a witch. He gives Saul some information. And and for Saul, Samuel says, the same thing he said years ago back in chapter 15 is about to happen. The kingdom has been torn from you and given to David because of your disobedience with the Amalekites. Only this time, um, there's even more here. Saul's sins carry great familial and national consequences. So Saul's sons will die along with much of Israel's army and the nation will be given to the Philistines. Our sin always brings carnage, friends. And the more leadership responsibility we have, the more carnage our sin will cause. And this really hit me hard this week. As a husband, as a father, as a a pastor here at the church with various leadership responsibilities, it weighed heavy on me this week of how much carnage my sin could cause. My family and my church family. May it never be. Samuel wants Saul to know that all which is about to happen to him is God's doing, by the way. God is not just sitting back and passively waiting for Saul's demise. No, he's actively pursuing Saul's end. I mean, just look at all the ways in this, this little dialogue here that Samuel says the Lord is at work. Verse 16, the Lord has turned from you. The Lord has become your enemy. Verse 17, the Lord has done to you. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and the Lord has given it to your neighbor. Verse 18, the Lord has done this thing to you. Verse 19, the Lord will give Israel also with you. And the Lord will give the army of Israel also. I mean, God's actively working about to bring judgment upon Saul. I cannot fathom a more terrifying and miserable end 
to someone than for the Lord to turn away his face from them and consider them an enemy. And to be truly alone, abandoned by God with only the promise of death is a hopeless and helpless reality for Saul and anyone else. Saul sought the witch, not the Lord. Saul, uh, Saul sought information from God, but he rejected communion with God. And, and uh, information from God, divorced from communion with God, is disastrous. And the Lord was like, you're done. Tomorrow you die. We'll see how all this ends here. Let's pick up here in verse Verse 20. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And he, he begged and he cried out to God for mercy and grace. Oh God, let it not be so. Does it say that? It says, and there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when he saw that she was, he was terrified, when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words so he arose from the earth, sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it and she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate. And they rose and went away that night. This news is so devastating that Saul falls on his face in fear and anguish. His strength is gone from him. He's terrified of what Samuel has said, but here's the thing. The terror and the fear did not bend his heart toward the Lord. As you read this and really just sit in it for a, a bit, it just it actually just seems to get this sense of fatalism in Saul's response. He's like, he just accepts it. It is what it is. Woe is me. And perhaps Saul couldn't change the temporal consequences of his action, but perhaps if he had begged God for mercy and grace on behalf of the nation of Israel, others would not have died. Or perhaps he could have changed through repentance the eternal consequences of his actions. He doesn't do any of that. What does he do instead? He gets up off the ground, sits on the witch's bed, solemnly has a meal with her and then vanishes in the night. It's almost as if Saul couldn't repent. It reminds me of passages of, of scripture that talk about being so entrenched in sinfulness, so hard-hearted toward the Lord that it is impossible to repent and be saved. It's just scary passages. And Saul falls on his face, and instead of trusting in the Lord, he trusts in his own woes. We ought to not do that. We ought to trust the Lord, not the woes. 
You see, Saul was an enemy of God and he died that way. We need to realize that when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, we were enemies of God and hostile toward him as well. But Saul's plight doesn't have to be our plight. His end doesn't have to be our end. We have hope. We have hope. Because where sin abounds, God's grace superabounds. Now get this, this is really cool. And verse 20, verses 24 and 25, the meal that Saul eats is kind of like his last supper. I mean, after all, the very next day, King Saul goes out and battles against his enemies. He dies in battle, and then it leads to the death and enslavement of his people. But we have a king of kings, King Jesus who ate his last supper, went to battle the next day against his enemy, died in battle on the tree, but rose from the dead on the third day, crushed the head of Satan, and brought about eternal life and freedom to all of his people. That's our king. King Jesus from the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, God turned his face away from Jesus on the cross, not because Jesus deserved it like Saul, but precisely because you and I deserved it. And Jesus took what we deserve so that God would never, ever, 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 it's in the Greek and the Hebrew, turn away his face from us, ever. And so if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, trust the Lord. Let's fall full length on the ground. I think we could all do a little bit better at that of, of getting low before a holy God at times, but not to wallow in our own miseries and woes like Saul and, and not to trust that our woes and deeds have, have brought about our own demise but let's fall prostrate before the Lord to cry to him in humble adoration and desperation. And you may be here uh, in this kind of place right now where it seems as though God has turned his face away from you, but the reality of the cross and the resurrection is that he has not. Preach that truth to yourself this morning and this afternoon and this evening and tomorrow for the rest of your life. God's face is turned toward us and he is with us. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, let me just invite you to fall prostrate on the ground before him as well in repentance, placing your trust in him for salvation. <laughs> Call out to him Seek him while he still may be found. Don't wait until it's too late like Saul did. Trust the Lord today. Your woes are not too many and your sins are not too great. Loved ones, whatever our desperations are this morning, whether that's fear, salvation, marriage, parenting, death, 
singleness, grief, finances, health, job, or sin struggles. Let's not follow Saul's example. Let's not fear the war. Let's not seek the witch. And let's not trust the woes. Let's do the opposite. Let's fear the Lord. Let's seek the Lord. Let's trust the Lord because he's here. And because of Jesus, his face is turned toward us. And so Heavenly Father, we worship you for that truth. Your face is turned toward us. Even when it doesn't seem like it is, God, we rest in the truth of your word that teaches that you turned away your face from Jesus so that you would never turn your face away from us. Oh Lord, God, you are awesome. You give us what we don't deserve. Relationship with you, oh God, would you help us to not just seek information from you, but communion with you. Oh God, do a great work in us. Help us. Help us to fear you more than the war around us and the internal war within us. Help us to to seek you and you alone for answers to all of our problems, to all of our questions. Help us to trust. Grow our faith, Lord. Little by little, day by day, And then, Lord, when it's time, make our faith complete, bring Jesus back, and call us home to be with you forever. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.